Jack and I have a granddaughter by the name of Rachel. You've heard me talk about her a few times. She is the youngest of our five grandchildren, and she was born with a feisty demeanor. She is not now and never has been a shrinking violet. She is fierce. Jack and I have always said that Rachel would grow up to be the President of the United States. Her mother says she is more likely to grow up and be the dictator of a small country. <laughs> when she was three years old, she went to preschool, just like her two sisters had done before her, and she was quite excited about this new experience in life, unaware that there would be a little more structure, few more rules to follow than she was used to. So after the first few days at school, her teacher, Mrs. McLaughlin, wrote an email to Erica and Peter, Rachel's parents, and the email said this, a little three-year-old girl was mad because she didn't get what she wanted. She folded her arms, stormed across the room, sat against the classroom door, and then she loudly announced, I quit. <laughs> this is the worst class I have ever been in. Fierce. Fierce, according to Webster's, is a heartfelt or powerful intensity. The Urban Dictionary defines fierce as a combination of a positive mental spirit, bold words, and unapologetic actions used collectively. Clearly, Rachel demonstrated what it means to be fierce. She was intensely committed to her words and her emotions and what she wanted. She was unapologetic in her actions, actions that she believed aligned perfectly with her truth. She was three years old. So what would it look like for us to be fierce? Not just in service to our own desires and opinions, but fierce in terms of our Christian identity. The vision for North Haven includes the call to be fierce Christians for our time and place. What does it mean to be a fierce Christian? And how do we nurture an identity and practices to that end? If you follow Richard Rohr's daily blog, you have been blessed this week by reflections on nonviolence and the Sermon on the Mount. Apparently, Mahatma Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every morning and every evening for over 40 years. Even though he was a devout Hindu, this teaching of Jesus was foundational to Gandhi's life and work. He says this in his autobiography, I saw that the Sermon on the Mount was the whole of Christianity for those who wanted to live a Christian life. It is that sermon which has endeared Jesus to me. I thought it was a beautiful example of the perfect human being. The teaching of Jesus stimulated Gandhi's efforts to liberate South Africa and India from systemic violence. 
He showed the power of active nonviolence to the world. And then he influenced Dr. Martin Luther King, who was inspired by Gandhi as he defined a new movement for civil rights in this country. In fact, King was so impressed with Gandhi that he declared him, Gandhi, a Hindu, to be the greatest Christian of all modern times. The theme verse for the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think this call to a higher righteousness is what it means. It is the essence of what it means to be a fierce Christian for our time. And then later in 721, we find the definition of higher righteousness. It means doing the will of God. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Doing the will of God is described in the Sermon on the Mount as the fulfillment of the law and prophets through the ministry of Jesus. Bottom line is this. If we want to embody a higher righteousness as Jesus did, we can look to the Sermon on the Mount for instruction. Now, this is no small thing. The Sermon on the Mount sets forth an extraordinarily difficult set of practices. But practicality was not the point. For the community of Matthew that recorded the teaching of Jesus, the very existence of the church was at stake. The church was defining itself, was defining who it was vis-a-vis -vis the synagogue. They were moving towards autonomy, they sought to reinterpret the prophet and the laws through the lens of the ministry, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is not practical to be like Jesus. Jesus was a boundary crosser, a radical, a revolutionary. Practicality was not the point for the one who was crucified. The theology of Jesus is fierce theology because at its heart it calls for a higher righteousness. Theologian Hans Dieter Betz says this, the Sermon on the Mount is not law to be obeyed, but theology to be intellectually appropriated and internalized in order to be creatively developed and implemented in concrete situations of our lives. Let me say that again because that's a mouthful and it's extremely important. Sermon on the Mount is not a set of laws to be obeyed, but theology to be appropriated, intellectually appropriated, but also internalized in our hearts and souls and minds, internalized, and then developed creatively and implemented in concrete situations that we face in our time.
in our place. I think that we can say we are fierce Christians insofar as we appropriate and internalize the ethics of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, as challenging as they may be. Listen to some of these challenging ethics. You have heard it say, you shall not murder, but I say don't even insult your brother and sister. Don't even get angry at them. You've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy. Love your enemy. How about this one? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or wear. These behaviors are reflective of a right relationship with God, and they are shocking. Shocking. They sound impossible. What they represent, though, is a theological stance, a higher righteousness that is much different than obedience to the law. It's a theology to be internalized and then creatively applied to the concrete situations of our lives. The behaviors in the Sermon on the Mount represent the ethics of Jesus, and we are followers of Jesus. In Wesleyan terms, these are the behaviors that reflect our journey of sanctification. Now, sanctification is a churchy word, but it means something really important. Sanctification is what happens when we receive the grace of God. It's the process of being made holy by the grace of God so that every thought or word or action is in accordance with the will of God. Our discipleship in John Wesley's understanding is an intentional journey of sanctification moving on towards perfection, he believed that being made perfect in life, in love, even in this life, was possible. The point is, if we are not on the path towards sanctification, towards perfection, then what path are we on? Our intentional journey of sanctification is the foundation of our life together, especially now especially in this time when the rains and the floods and the winds of change are upon us. I have to believe that the winds of change were like a hurricane in the time of Jesus. What he did was he never abandoned the practice of his relationship with God. And the crowds who surrounded him, they were astounded by him. Here's how Matthew describes it. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The Greek word for authority is exousia, which literally means he taught with authority. He taught out of his own being. 
Jesus taught out of his own being. Now, the scribes, on the other hand, they taught according to an external authority, the Torah, the law. Jesus taught with an internal authority, out of his own being. Jesus so identified with God that he internalized the will of God. He relocated the will of God from an external authority called the law and into himself, into his own internal being. He was sanctified. He taught out of his character as he was the perfect God-man, fully sanctified. For us then, what does this mean? I believe it means that it's vital that we become teachers who preserve the challenging message of our gospel. And we do that by nurturing the relationship we have with Christ who is within us. As the church, we will continue to be bold only insofar as we nurture our relationship with the indwelling presence of God, the Christ within us. It is only by that power that we will avoid the temptation to dilute the message and settle for a gospel that offends no one. I don't think that's who we are as North Haven. We are called to be fierce Christians for our time by being intentional about our faith development, our sanctification. Are we up for this? Are we up for this? Are we up for this challenging call to preserve the bold gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we committed to nurturing our relationship with Christ and living with the authority that comes out of that relationship? That's how we will be, continue to be, fierce Christians for our time by taking the authority that is within us through the Christ who dwells in us. May it be so.